you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Alec Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out to the masses later this year. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who's made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, on Showtime. I'm currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome filmmaker and editor Roger Nygaard to the show to talk about how he got started in filmmaking, how he made the world's best documentary, Trekkies, and the second best documentary in the world, Trekkies 2, and how he goes about editing comedy, and specifically, he details about his work in Curb Your Enthusiasm. After that, we talk about the Film Collaborative's distributor report card, and we have another listener question to answer. But first, Ulrich, how you doing? What's going on in life? How are you? <sighs> I'm good. Sort of like just realizing that my movie is now done and there's nothing for me to do for it at all right now. You know, I could be doing more posts about the film festivals that I've got coming up. I could be doing more of this and more of that. But I think for the most part, it's like the movie's done and it's, uh, yeah, just waiting for it to come out. It's like the waiting game, which is... Is it uh, relief, though, too, that you have less to do? Yeah. No, it's good. I'm glad that it's that it's like done and I don't have to like export another version of it or whatever <laughs> it's all it's all over i did like all my special features and everything too which was really fun i got all those in the can and yeah it's cool i just i just can't wait for people to actually see it and to see what happens with it and find out you know am, am i putting myself in a good place to make another movie or am i gonna just have to be i don't know like whatever doing building the house of cards again from scratch for the next one you know we'll see we'll see what happens but I think it's the answer is not mutually exclusive. I think you're putting yourself in a good place and you're going to have to build the House of Cards again. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. No, I mean, I feel like most likely it, it'll be it'll be that. Right. But I'll just have like a better foundation yeah. for my house than I did before, which is good. Yeah. And I've been writing, you know, a, a page or, or two here and there, you know, like it's now over 20 pages on the script, which is kind of amazing to like. Nice be that far along you know as i write i like identify problems and keep on retweaking the, the outline but i don't know i think it's going to be a fun script it, it's probably not like i think i started writing it thinking i was going to be able to make this as my next movie but then the more and more i write the more and more i'm like this is just this is just gonna be crazy this movie's got so many special effects and so much action and it's like you know it's just not the kind of thing that I think would be easy to make as a second feature, but I really want it to be the second feature, but I just don't think it could be. But I'm working with another guy who's who's got something that I think like you could actually make for a low budget. It's like in one house, most like mostly. It's like five characters max, you know, it's seems easy. So I'm I'm like waiting to read that. So I'm I, he's like writing it right now. So I'm I'm excited to see how that goes. But I don't know. I'm just sort of like in this feeling of like ah What's going to happen next? What's happening? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I guess I just need to keep writing, stay, stay positive and, you know, not, not like, I feel like sometimes with me, like if I don't have a lot of things to do, I start to lose energy yeah. and it's like almost better to be overbooked. Like, cause it's, it's like, oh, you got so many things to do. It's like, what are you going to do next? Ah, but like now that like I have less and less to do, I'm not like, like thinking about that time as like, oh, I have so much time to work on the thing. It's more like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> I don't know. To like ask yourself questions, the important questions, actually, that we yeah. avoid, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. 
I think I just need to keep my head down and like, you know, like do, do better time blocking. Like, oh, I have this time that I would have spent, you know, working on my movie. Like that should be time that I'm writing or time that I'm, you know, actually, you know, trying to build, you know, the audience for the alternate or something. Like there should just be a better focused use of the time rather than like laying on the couch behind me and like being like, what's going on? Why? Why don't I have another movie made? I don't know. You know, I don't know. Anyways, but how, how are things with you, Liz? I, I go through the exact same thing. I'm going through that right now as well, where you're like, oh, I have time. And therefore, I'm confronted with the questions that I avoid through doing menial tasks that I've just assigned myself throughout the week. So it's slightly different, but I, I know what you're going through. Last night, Colin woke us up at 2.30. In these like 30-minute increments, he really doesn't do that very often. And I really couldn't get back to sleep. And what the problem is, is the reason I couldn't get back to sleep is I was trying to think of something like, oh, I'm going to try to escape into like some sort of fantasy. And all my fantasies are like too exciting. So then I can't get back to sleep. Like (laughs) I was like, oh, wouldn't it be so nice nice if I made this movie and people watched it and it played at a film festival? Like I just started thinking all these things and I was like, no, you can't daydream at night. Like you can't do that because then you won't rest. So then I had to think of really boring things in order to get myself to sleep. But point being, like, I think the drive and the hunger is still in me to such a degree that I, it keeps me up at night. <laughs> like, yeah, right. When your mind, like, has time to think, it, like, won't let go of all of those, like, really exciting goals you have for your own career. So that's what happened. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, which is probably why I'm rambling a little bit right now. <laughs> Other than that, I, I gave up a project. Oh. It was a feature I was attached to, and I, I let the writers know who very kindly let me attach to it that I just wasn't making many tra- a lot of traction. And that has made me feel better. And I'm starting to, like I said last week, like really prioritize a few things and then that have the most amount of energy and not feel the guilt about not making 15 different mountains, you know, but like just trying to right. traverse at least one or two. Right now. Why did you feel the need to separate yourself from the project? Was it because like you didn't you didn't think you're doing the project any favors by being attached and better let the writers find someone else who'd actually try to get it made? Or was it that you just didn't care about it anymore? Like what was the reason? Well, you know, I requested to attach. It was a script that kind of had fallen into inactivity to a certain degree. And the writers wanted to direct it at some point and then they gave up the ghost. And I had told one of the writers, like, who was a friend of mine, I was like, you know, I'm pitching a lot of horror content right now. If you let me pitch your film, maybe it'll help. And then I realized that I I couldn't spread myself that thin to have that Mm. much passion about that many projects. And I kind of just acknowledged it to him last week. And he was so sweet about it. So had it been a situation where they were actively putting that project out into the world as well, I would have been like, hey, I'm on board for the journey, right? But because it was on me and I had requested to try to find a production company or financier for it, like I wasn't doing any favors. Right, right. That makes sense. I'm going to ask you a question that maybe you don't want to talk about, but um, I saw on Twitter the other day that you wrote something along the lines of feeling a lot of compare and despair today. Was this you on Twitter? Yeah, yeah. And the reason why I want to ask you about it for you is because like literally a couple of hours before you wrote that, I was looking at previous guest Andrew Carlberg's Facebook about like, and Twitter where he's like, yeah, 
Oscar winner. Like, oh, it was such a great time winning the Oscar a couple of years ago, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> well, I don't have anything. I have never even got any kind of whatever award ever. This guy, ah, and I was just comparing myself to Andrew Carlberg, just being like, ah, oh, I have nothing. My life is meaningless compared to what this guy's accomplished, you know? And so I was doing the same thing, and I saw that you had that, that tweet from you, and it kind of made me feel like, oh, a little bit of like, I don't know, just like shared experience. But mm. yeah, are you over that? Like, what was that? Was it just a momentary thing? Like, I don't know. I just want to just talk about it if you're yeah. willing to talk about it. <laughs> it was a South by thing where it's like uh, my entire timeline was filled with people who were at South by and got into South ah. by were playing South by. And that was like, I'm very happy for them. Like, that's very exciting. But it, it felt like a yeah, a moment where I was just very jealous. And then a good friend of mine from film school just is blowing up right now and doing amazingly and like she and i had produced a short film together like she's a friend you just see like these people like shoot into the rockets and you're just like how how are they i just want to know i just want to know how they're doing it but i usually go to sean and i say things like i'm really disappointed at my progress right now i should be doing more i should be farther and then he goes well do do they have a colin do they have a sean do they have a Laura Palmer? Laura Palmer's my dog. And I'm like, you know, they don't have a Sean and a Colin and a Laura Palmer. And he's like, well, then, you know, isn't your life a lot better than theirs? And I was like, fine, my life is better than theirs. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, just being thankful for the things that you have, you know, that's definitely a good lesson. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. We should get that person on the show and learn. <laughs> How do they get I stuff bet she by would stuff? do it. I'm going to write we it down. Do. <laughs> She's amazing. She's really genuinely a wonderful human. But, but to answer the core of your question, no, I feel it all the time and it's gotten worse. And I think I actually have to stop going on social media so much because that is genuinely where I feel it most when I'm just scrolling and then seeing all these people's accomplishments and you just feel like shit. You feel real bad about yourself. So. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think for me, it's like, like, th- this is probably one of the reasons why I've been writing a little bit this last couple of weeks is because I have been if you're having the same kind of feelings, not by, about South by Southwest specifically right now, but like, you know, but I have had that feeling about that festival and other festivals. Um, yeah. But just like, you know, just seeing people and, and like where they are in their careers and wishing I was at the same place in my career. But it just makes me like, like, okay, I'm going to write. Like, I'm just going to, this is the thing I can control. Yeah. This thing I can do that's going to help me get in the right position, like, you know, trying to, to write emails and like, you know, pit myself out or I don't know, whatever else you would do, like networking, you'd call it or whatever. And that just depresses me, you know, when, so like, but like, right, especially in those moments, right, when you're like, feeling like you're not where you want to be. But I think writing and being creative is always a good outlet for me that helps me like, mm-hmm. you know, feel a little bit better about the situation, you know. And also like hanging out with family. That also helps too. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think you're right. And I also, I also think a part of it is thinking about the things you can control. Like I've been talking to a bunch of people lately and I talk about it on the show a lot or like I attach myself to a bunch of features that I believe in, that I love, projects that I want to fight for. But you can't really control the speed of a lot of those projects if you're going for outside, you know, external funding sources. And I did it because I was like, surely I'm not going to have to make another micro budget feature. This is crazy. I've already done it twice. But I have come back down to the argument of I'm actually really looking forward to making another micro budget feature. And mm. I think if you can put together a project like you were talking about at the top of the show, something 
that you can more easily control, you more likely will get it done. And so I'm looking to my next, you know, one of my projects is going to be micro budget. And I'm just thinking, okay, well, I'm going to put all the energy into that one. You know, when, when it, when we find, when we fundraise, like I won't, there's no need to be so depressed because there will be another project is what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's always something coming, but I feel like it's the same thing as it's you who does it, right? It's not like these outward forces. It's not these other things that you like, you know, you know, you apply for this, this grant or this program or, you know, you're talking to this like, you know, financier or financier company or whatever, you know, it's like, no, like that's not where it's going to come from. It's going to come from like you doing it brick by brick, like you did it every other time that you've done it. (laughs) Speaking of bricks, don't forget to donate to our Patreon. Because they, I can't, brick by brick, we're building the show. Do you see what I did there? I yes, that. I love it. Do you want to shout out the fact that like our Patreon has become very important to us? It is genuinely how we pay Ulrich back for funding the show. We're not super public about it, but we're still in the red. And this Patreon, the more we raise a dollar more every month, it goes towards genuinely like Ulrich's pocketbook because he friends the, can I say this? Can I just be this explicit about this? Let's all sure. work together to pay Ulrich back for paying for this show. And you do that by joining our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash MMIH, I believe is what it is. Yes, MMIH podcast. We also have a partnership with Jambox.io, and they are a royalty-free music and SFX company. It's a very cool platform. Ulrich has used it for his trailer. They offer customized plans to fit your needs. Check them out, jambox.io. But without any more further delay, here's our chat with Roger Nygaard. All right. Well, we're here with Roger Nygaard, you know, most famously, in my mind, known for directing and editing Trekkies, but probably more famously for a lot of other people for editing shows like Veep and Curb Your Enthusiasm and many, many other things. Welcome to the show, Roger. Hi, hey, good to be here. Can't wait. Let's blow this place up. So first, give us the elevator pitch for your book. Ah, I just wrote a book. How about that? It's uh, I found myself sitting in editing rooms with people like Larry David and Judd Apatow, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Sasha Baron Cohen, and I started thinking, I should interrogate these people and like find out what how they know what's funny or what's not funny or how what edit to make and how they do what they do. Since I had them trapped so i started doing that and i learned so much from it and i began taking notes and i collected all of their wisdom as well as my wisdom about editing and comedy and put it into a book took took me about two years after my first interview the book is called cut to the monkey and my goal was not to write sort of a lofty meditation on what is montage because how does that help you make your micro budget film right it doesn't my book is more of a an editor's cookbook. Like, here's how you do it. I, I saw so many people making the same mistakes over and over again. Even seasoned editors, filmmakers, that I thought, okay, I've got, I got to, I got to step in here. It's an intervention, and so you'll stop wasting time and money because it's precious when you're shooting, especially on a lower budget. You don't have resources to waste. So why are you shooting this shot that is never going to make it into the cut? And, you know, I'll, I'll jump right into that. You know, here's an example. So many times I have cut out the most beautiful, amazing tracking shot or drone shot or crane shot because there's no important dialogue on it. And when you're cutting down to time, it has to go. 
So my my advice is, if you if you must do a beautiful crane shot or drone shot, put dialogue on it that you must have, and then we have to keep it. Otherwise, it's going to get cut out, most likely. <laughs> so that was my goal in the book, to make a manual for, like, here's how to do things better in an easy-to-understand way and how to make things funnier. Well, how long did it take to write? I mean, I think you actually already said two years, but how can you talk a little bit about the publishing process? Once you wrote the book, what does that look like? Sure. I mean, one of the other initiating factors was when I was working on Grey's Anatomy, about the same time as I had this thought, one of the editors came up to me. There's four editors on that show because they have so many episodes to get out per season, 24, I think it generally is. And he said to me, how do you cut comedy? Because he's been cutting drama for so long. And I had brought on the show because, had been brought on to the show because Christopher Ernoff wanted to go back toward their comedy roots, so they brought in a, someone who's better at, com- you know, specialist in comedy. So I, I started making a list for him of 10 or 12 things, and I just kept going, and that's why, you know, from that point, I started interviewing people I was working with, and it took me two years to finish a draft of the book. But I just started, like, I jotted down things for him like, okay, if you want a scene to get funnier, go to the wider shots. Drama is in the close-ups. And comedy tends to be in the wider shots, because then you can see the body language. Somebody might be standing in a way that's awkward, which gives you additional humor that you would miss if you're on the tight shot. So I gave him this list, and I just kept going. And there is an entire process that I learned in book publishing, which is it's similar to making a movie, and you want to, you want to you make a film, you go to film festivals, you try to find a distributor. With a book, you write a book, and you want to find a publisher who is essentially your distributor. The way they work is... Most of the time, people write a, uh, it's, it's like a pitch. My book is going to have this many chapters. It's going to have this, these, these people. Here is who you sell it to. Here is the demographic that will buy it. You teach them everything. Here's, basically, you're showing them how to sell it, which is kind of what you do with a film. When, with The whole point of going to film festivals is to create a how-to-sell-my-movie document or material evidence to present to a distributor. So th- they want their job to be easy. So here's a poster, here are review quotes, here's what people said about it, here's the people that like it, and so now they have a recipe for how to sell your product, because that's what excites a distributor more than anything is, oh, I know exactly who we're going to sell this to. And it's the same with a book, essentially. So they like to have you write the first three chapters, or at least one sample chapter, plus a layout for the rest, and then you get an agent, just like with a movie, a book agent who sends it out to all the publishers, who then, you hope, someone will, will bite. The fallback, of course, is self-publishing, which you can now do with movies, too, essentially, on Amazon Prime or, or wherever you're going to... Uh, Vimeo Plus, you can put your... I've done that. I put my all my movies up on Vimeo Plus. The revenue comes directly to me with a small cut to Vimeo Plus. Same with Amazon Prime. But anyway, my agent took a year of sending this, this proposal out to all the publishers before we finally got a good one that we liked, and, and then... They sort of take over and help you with editing and choosing, a, making a cover and, and putting it out there. And what was the rough budget for the book? It's so much less than a movie. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it, the threshold to profit is so much lower than when I'm making my documentaries. It's going to cost me 200 grand minimum by the time it's over. I always start with high hopes. I'm going to keep the budget down on this one. I'm, only gonna, I'm not going to pay anybody. I'm going to buy my cameras and shoot myself. But it adds up with travel and, you know, hotels and hard drives and computer breaks. You know, it's 100, 200 grand by the time you've, you've got it out there and release. With a book, 
it's you and your computer and doing maybe doing some interviews and then transcribing them with Sonics or Rev and pulling that together and writing. So it's low. Writing a book... And here's something, you know, if you want to talk about process for... This is what I'm telling filmmakers now about writing. It's so hard to sell a screenplay. Everyone's got one, and they're all terrible. So yours is lumped in with theirs. Everyone assumes your screenplay is terrible. And it is, most likely. But take that idea and write a book. Write a novel. Write a great page-turning novel. And even if you can't get it published, you can self-publish it. And now it exists. It's a property. It's an IP. And then it gets so much more respect when you try to submit it to production companies. Oh, this is this is a book, or the script is based on a book. As though as though you're a different person. It's just you and it's the same story, but now you've <laughs> created a product, a property, and you're helping to sell it by building value in this property before you bring it to the agents or the buyers. Yeah, I've optioned this book, and then you don't have to say that you wrote the book. I love that. <laughs> Compared to all, all the other projects, I mean, inclusive, obviously, of the films that you've made, how difficult was this one? I mean, you just talked about the process, but I mean, emotionally as well, would you say that this was an easier process overall, not just financially? Well, yeah, good question, because it seems like every project I do is the most difficult one than all the prior projects. And partly that's just me. I like to take on the new challenge. I don't like to do the same thing over and over again. And so writing a book was a new challenge. And so it was very difficult. Huge new learning curve. And each of my documentaries has gotten more challenging because I've taken on more difficult subjects and it's taken longer to film. Trekkies took nine months to film because the subject matter was so colorful. We had a movie very quickly. And then my second documentary, which is called Six Days in Roswell, took two years. That's about a profile of this town that went alien crazy. My third documentary, The Nature of Existence, was, okay, an even more difficult topic, existentialism. How do you make a documentary about existentialism? It's impossible, and that's what it attracted me. It's the challenge of the impossibility of doing it. But I found a way, and I did it, and that took four years. And then I had to find a topic that was even more inexplicable than existence itself, and my fourth documentary is about marriage and relationships. And that took me seven years to finish that documentary. And so each one gets more and more challenging, Which, but I like that. I've got to challenge myself to do something that I maybe uh, am afraid of. It's like taking on your fears by, by doing the thing you're afraid of. So I want to go back to the beginning. So, you know, looking at your... We all I we am only want to talk question. about Trekkies yes. for the next two hours. I'm so sorry. <laughs> We're going to start with the Trekkies question and, and really like, you know, kind of why that was the movie that you made at the time and like what was the impact when it was done, basically. Trekkies was such an accident, a mistake, if you will. I had made this, my first feature is called High Strung and it was a comedy and written by a comic named Steve Odekirk who starred in it. And one of the people we cast in the film was Denise Crosby. She came in and read for the part, was fantastic and the best actress for the part. We gave her the role, and we stayed in touch, stayed friends. And over the years, we'd have lunch occasionally. And one, one time she said to me, I've been going to these Star Trek conventions. And she would describe it and go, wow, that's crazy. I mean, I had been to a convention once in my life when I first moved to California. Not Star Trek, but it was a Fangoria convention, which was this magazine about gory horror films. And one thing that always stuck with me when I went to that convention was that there was an auction. People were bidding on a pair of 
ears, Spock ears, allegedly these rubber ears that someone had gotten their hands on and said, well, these were actual Spock rubber ears from one of the episodes. And somebody, they bid that up to $600 or something, and I was just flabbergasted. $600 for a piece of rubber that's decaying? And it always stuck with me. And then one day, Denise says to me, I've been to this convention where they see Star Star Trek people, and it's so fascinating. They're amazing and funny and interesting. And and she said, we should make a documentary about this. So it was her idea. And I, I said, I can't believe no one's done this yet. It seems so obvious. Why has no one done this? But no one had. And there are still great ideas out there that no one has done yet today. And you are you may be the first one to recognize it. And she saw the idea. She pitched it. We talked to some producers I just worked with on an action picture, Neo Motion Pictures, into financing a shoot for one weekend. We went to, there was a convention Denise was invited to as a speaker called Fantasticon at the LAX Hilton, and several of the original cast members were going to be there, and we thought, okay, let's just give it a shot. I had never filmed a documentary before, and neither had Denise. So I went to this place called Vidiots in Santa Monica, this old video <gasps> rental store. It was famous for having quirky titles, and I rented several documentaries, and Denise and I sat down and watched them together, and that was our film school for making documentaries. We watched Brothers Keeper, Hoop Dreams, Crumb. Crumb was the closest thing I could find to what we were doing, which Trekkies, like obsession about some kind of pop culture issue or th- thing. I, there, there was a documentary I had seen many years ago also, which may be the original kernel for this, called Mondo Elvis, which was a half an hour short about people who were obsessed with Elvis and believed he was still alive, and they claimed they had his baby. And this sort of, this seed sprouted in my head as we conceived what Trekkies could be. Denise Crosby and I brainstorming, and, and then we did our first shoot. We gathered this footage, kind of stumbled through it, the footage was amazing, and I cut together a 20-minute demo of that first weekend, and we used that to take to investors to try to raise a budget to finish the film. And we actually had some interest, but then we talked about it with the producers and Denise and I, and we thought, why should we give this away? Let's own it. Let's just keep going. We're all, you know, it's going to be great. So we put our own money in, me, Denise, and these producers, and finished the film ourselves. I, I don't even know if I have a question. It's just that <laughs> I don't watch Star Trek, but I've seen Trekkies like half a dozen times. And Trekkies, I think I've seen Trekkies too, maybe twice. But I'm just saying like, I love that movie. I, I literally never just say a statement and not give a question, but I'm just a big fan. And when <laughs> your teammate reached out to us, we were like, all right, this book sounds really cool. We have a lot of questions for you about dr- future directing to TV to editing, but but I just wanted to say that it's such a great movie. It's such a comfort to me. Okay, now Auric's going to talk about his Star Trek fandom. Well, let me comment on your comment. And I think the reason that you maybe you may like the film, I hope this is the reason, I'm not a Trekkie, right? I'm an outsider looking in. I've known Trekkies, and, and I found them to be really funny and interesting. And Denise and I approached this from a point of view where we wanted everyone involved in the film and watching it to equally to enjoy it equally. We didn't want to do any cheap shots. We wanted it to be as hilarious as possible, but in an affectionate way, so that anyone could enjoy this film as a comedy, even if you know nothing about Star Trek, because here are the most obsessive people you could ever imagine, and obsession is hilarious. But also, they're great people. The, the moral of the story is, you know what? There's worse things to be obsessed with than Star Trek. These people are doing... A lot of good things. They're charity work, and they follow the prime directive. (laughs) 
infinite diversity and infinite combinations. They look to a future where everyone is equal and everyone has a chance. Men, women, the handicapped, I mean, the blind man is driving the ship. And so that's what brings everyone together is a sense of inclusion at a Star Trek convention. That's what I discovered is everyone belongs. No one is rejected. Everyone is welcome. And that's an ethos that is really attractive to people. And so someone who's like you, who maybe not be a Star Trek fan, could watch this film and still laugh and enjoy it and have a great time, even though you know nothing about Star Trek, because the film is not about Star Trek. There's not a single clip from Star Trek in there. It's just about people. It's a profile of obsession. It makes me feel better. It makes me wish I were a fan, because they seem so loving and kind. (laughs) And I want like a Spiner. What is it? The Spiner Femmes? With the spiner fems. <laughs> like you a, could be a spiner fem and take a spine uh, a Brent break. A Brent break. That's right. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, I've been to two conventions or three conventions, and I've been to Comic Con twice also. So I'm not I'm just talking, you know, Star Trek conventions. So yeah, I'm one of those people. I used to have a Starfleet uniform in my closet. Got it got too bit too small for me. But anyways, so <laughs> I was on the other side. But yeah, I mean, what I really want to talk about is like. Like, was that just another movie that you made in your career? Or did that somehow, like, help you get more work as an editor, get more work as a director? Or was it just, like, this thing that you did that was just kind of had the same effect as the other movies you had made before that? Yeah, there's an old joke, a Woody Allen joke that I quote in my book. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Because nothing goes the way you ever expect in this business, for sure. And I never expected or desired to be a documentarian. I just fell into it by accident because Denise Crosby had this suggestion, and I just went with it and said, okay, let's try and figure this out. My goal was to make James Bond movies or, you know, big studio films ever since I was a kid. And I came out here to Los Angeles and got in the business and got on the ladder and started working. And then suddenly there's this documentary possibility. And this film bought my house. How often does a documentary? It was so successful. (laughs) Beyond our wildest expectations, and spawned a sequel, Trekkies Two, and we're we're still brainstorming Trekkies Three. You know, and we'll get around to that. We've got great ideas for it. I think we'll do that in the next year or two. So yes, it's that's coming, and completely unknown, unexpected, not at all what I thought my career would do. And the success of that film opened doors in other ways. When I was directing on a TV episodes or, or on a TV set. Often, the writers would come up to me and say, oh, I saw Trekkies and loved it, and that's one reason I said we got to get him here. So success breeds success, and it, it cross-pollinates. Wow, that's awesome. So you feel like that, that was part of the reason why you get the opportunity to direct more things later on down the line? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it helps. I mean, success helps, no matter what arena, but there's... First of all, you still have to overcome the Catch-22, where they don't like to hire you if you haven't done something before so you have to prove yourself you need that's why you make a short film or you do an indie film or you do a sizzle reel proof of concept you got to show you can do it before they'll hire you to do it and trekkies showed what i can do as a documentarian and has helped me in like the reality arena and with curb your enthusiasm i think that's how i got the one of the reasons i got the job editing curb your enthusiasm they took that into account This guy's got to edit improvised footage, which is not dissimilar from making a documentary. I was just curious about your training as a fiction filmmaker and then how that could apply to making a subject at ease, especially being an outsider, not being a Trekkie or Trekker yourself. 
I'm just thinking about you're going in these people's homes and how did you get them to be comfortable with you? Yes, you need people to open up and to be themselves to succeed as a documentarian. A lot of people are on guard and trying to manage how they will come off on camera and they make the worst subjects. You want the narcissistic people, the obsessed people, the ones who are totally open about who they are, who are they're they're genuine, they're going to reveal themselves. One way we were able to do that with Trekkies is because Denise Crosby was our ace in the hole. They saw her as an insider and one of them and were glad to open up to her. So she was the face of the film and she would sit in the chair and they would talk to her and I would sit behind Denise and I would write down questions on note cards and hand them to her in between questions she was asking and she would riff on my questions and we definitely worked as a team but that's what helped get us in the door. And then as I made my next documentaries, you do need to make people comfortable. So one way is you film them and then in an environment where they are comfortable, like their own home, someplace where they feel safe to open up and tell you about themselves. And a good way to do that is, and you guys did this when we before we started this podcast, you know, is to say, say, you know, whatever's on your mind, but feel free if there's something that you say that you don't want me to use, tell me and we'll, we'll you know, I'll take it out. So you, I put them at ease so that they know they're in good hands because I want them to be happy and proud of their participation in the project. And I try to express that to them before we begin, that that's my goal. I want them to be thrilled that they took part in this and happy. Although the biggest criticisms I should say the number one criticism I've gotten from all of the subjects in my documentaries is is always pretty much the same sentence. You should have had more of me. They're always surprised that they get cut down by, you know, we spend an hour, two hours in a chair, and then it gets cut down to two minutes. And so what happened to the rest? <laughs> so I want to talk about your transition from directing comedy to editing comedy in television. So, like, you know, you you did Bernie Mac show, you did The Office, and then now later you're editing for these other shows. Is there a reason why you went from directing to editing? Was, like, that just something that evolved naturally? Or was there a clear decision on your part? Like, you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it definitely, my career evolved. And there is a big difference between directing and editing. I love both. I pursued directing strongly in the 20s, in the 2000s. In the 1990s and did i've made seven feature films seven or what is it up to eight or nine i forget i made a lot of feature films four documentaries and three narratives and then i switched into television directing television and what has happened is that editing has really captured my heart i love the process so much plus there's so much more work available to me. I get more offers for editing, and it's a long-term commitment. It might be a six- or nine-month job, whereas a directing job might be two weeks, one week, or a month at most. Maybe a feature film, if it's a big-budget feature film, then you're you know on the job for much longer. But in television, the TV director has very little control. It's not your medium. It's the producer's medium. They control it. You have to come in, if you're taking over an episode on an ongoing series... You have to absorb the style and the dynamic of the set and fit in. And if something goes wrong, it's your fault, though, even though it's not you didn't create the dynamic, but you're there to do the best you can at absorbing it and repurposing it and giving them the style that that the show has because the directors are rotated in and out. The producers are writer producers and they're there. They are there for the whole run. 
especially the creator. And so you have to, to absorb and, and recreate what the creator gave you. I found that less satisfying than editing where I am a writer. An editor is a writer on the project. It's the final rewrite of the script. The script is written sort of like writing a recipe for a, a meal. And then the production, the filming is like going shopping and picking up all the ingredients you know, maybe they're out of this, so you substitute that. There's a special on peas, and so we're going to switch from to peas. You get all the ingredients. Now you deliver the, the, the ingredients and the recipe, which is the script, to the chef. And the editor is the chef. And the chef, it matters who the chef is. It could be a bad chef or a good chef. And the result will be entirely dependent on that person and how they combine and utilize what you present to them. The script is sort of like a wish. It's a hope. I'm, I'm imagining it could be like this. But when they shot, they didn't get enough to be like that. So it's going to be different, friends, but it's still great. It's going to be great, but not what you originally imagined. And so I get so much creativity. I get to express my own creativity as a co-writer, essentially, an editor. I'm rewriting what they're giving me. Into I'm moving scenes around. I'm shortening things. I'm combining changing, writing new lines for to re-record, whatever it takes to make the best possible product. And I love that process. And so that's one reason that editing has captured my heart. I mean, directing is very lucrative in short bursts, but editing is lucrative because it's so such consistent work. We talk a little bit about diversifying your career and sustainability. You're talking about your career with a lot of love, but I want to know if there's also some strategy going on too, because if you're doing editing and directing and writing a book, you've got different income streams, right? So I'm just curious, is that all by design or is it really you are following your heart each time thinking, oh, I want to write a book. Oh, I want to edit this. Or is there a plan at work? Right. Ideally, all of the above. I think I read the four hour work week and the idea of passive passive income streams are what you want. You know, real estate investors make money while they're sleeping because it just goes up in value over time if you buy a property. Each movie I make and, and each book that I write creates a new passive royalty revenue stream that over time, if it's an evergreen product, and that's the term they use in the business where something just keeps selling and selling over time, if it's an evergreen product, it's going to keep paying off some royalties. My, my film, The Nature of Existence, when it was released in 2010, and every year, I every quarter, I still get royalties from the video on all the platforms that Gravitas has, has distributed it to. Trekkies has paid royalties for 20 years. And some films, though, don't pay any royalties. They're still in the hole. <laughs> and, but, you know, I want them trying to get the, the, the ones that climb out of the hole because there's enough of an audience for it, and it's not a home movie. You've got to be careful. What you're making is not a home movie. Just because you love the idea, it might not be enough. You do have to consider, well, is there a broad audience for this? Now, you can't focus on that entirely because you can never guess what everyone else wants. So ideally, what you do is you think, well, if I like this and if I'm enthralled with this, the audience will probably feel the same way. And, and so you, you just keep making product and keep putting it out there and... Uh, while I'm shooting, directing, writing, I'm, I've got five different projects all the time that I'm developing. And let's see which one heats up and will be next, whether it's a documentary or a book or a narrative feature film or a TV show, whatever it might be. I don't know what will be next necessarily, but there's many possibilities that are, are always cooking. 
I want to talk a little bit about process in comedy editing. So, like, how does it work? Like, are you getting the dailies in and, like, you know, with the script and then you're just starting off on your own and doing an assembly? Or is the creator or the director of the show always there with you at every moment? Like, can you just talk about, like, the different stages of editing an episode of comedy and, like, how it all plays out? Sure. It's different when it's an improv show improv improvised dialogue show like curb versus a uh, circled takes show like gray's anatomy with gray's anatomy they've spent a lot of time writing the script and they're happy with it and they want you to cut the script they want the directors to shoot the script and they don't want the actors to go off script they want to create the script and so my first cut as an editor's cut contains everything that they wrote and they shot the best version possible And I present that to the director who might spend two days on doing the director's cut, arranging things, revising things, and and explaining, oh, that's what that shot was for. You know, the editor, I'm always going to miss something. And I'll think of things that the director never thought of. Oh, I never thought of using that shot here. But we spent a couple days, and then we turned the the cut over to the producer, Krista Vernoff. And she has the final say because it's the executive producer's medium in television. And we make her changes and cut it to time, and that's what goes out. With Curb Your Enthusiasm, the way Jeff Schaefer puts it, who's the one of the co-showrunners with Larry David, he said it's like they shoot all this footage and they dump it on your doorstep like some unwanted baby, and they say, okay, we'll come back after he graduates from college. You take care of it from here. <laughs> and so it is sort of like that, where we get all this f- improvised footage, and... I especially have to be a good writer myself as an editor because I'm helping write the scenes, trying to make each scene work. Oftentimes they miss a piece of setup or some kind of exposition that helps you know what's going on plot-wise. And if I recognize it's missing, I've got to work around that or recreate it somehow or find a way to loop a line of dialogue that will replace it. So I have to build the scene and make it work. One of the ways I do that is I start from the from the end. I begin at the end. I use the last take and work my way backwards. I find the last good take where essentially when they get to to a point where they feel like they've got it and they move on, that's probably got the most usable fo- footage, the best jokes. Everything is maybe working and clicking. So I cut it when I'm looking at a scene, I'll cut a version of the scene from that one take because there's probably two or three cameras. I have multiple angles because now everything is shot with multiple cameras for the most part. And then I take that working scene from that one take and go back in time and look at the prior take and try to beat what I've got and work my way back to the first take. Now, if I started at the first take, I would have to do a lot more work because I'd be replacing 95% of the scene. Whereas if I start with the take that's probably their best run at it, I only have to replace maybe 50, 60, 70% as opposed to 95. So I get the scene done faster that way. I already know, oh yeah, that's the best version of that line every time I look at a, an earlier take. And after I finish putting a scene together that way, then I'll do a special pass just for rea- uh, reactions, a reaction pass, to make sure that we're checking in with everybody in the scene to see what they're thinking or feeling or reacting to a moment. I look at the actors when they're not speaking to find, oh, that's a funny moment where he, he shifted his eyes, and so I'll drop that into the scene. And 
Another thing I do is I listen to the scenes more than I look at the scenes visually. I listen because the performance, the nuances of performance are in the dialogue. Sound is crucial. Indie filmmakers get good sound because that's where the performance is. And once I have a scene working performance-wise, then I will look at it visually, almost as an afterthought, and make sure that it's balanced. Okay, we need to open with a wider shot to show our, to establish our location and you want to make sure you're not cutting from wide to close over and over and over again. You want to balance it out and maybe do clumps of close intercuts and then a couple of wide intercuts. And I'll make sure the scene flows elegantly, visually, after I've captured the performances I like, which is in the soundtrack. I love how specific that is. Let's go back even further in time. I'm going to beat Ulrich. Before before Trekkies came about, can you talk a little bit about the process of acquiring financing for your projects. I know you you spoke a little bit about sizzle reels and pitches, but before you're established, you have to start somewhere. And how did you acquire a group of people that you could even go to to approach us for financing? Everybody knows some rich people. And so that's where you start. You just start pitching them. Hey, I'm making this film. You should get on board. Nobody wants to get on board a train wreck, right? But we all want to get on board a train that's going somewhere. This train's going somewhere. Fun. This is going to be amazing. You get to hang out with stars. You get to go to a premiere. Your name is going to be on the screen. When you're long gone and dead, people are going to remember your name because your name is in this movie as an executive producer. It's your enthusiasm that sells people and convinces them to give you their money. I mean, a con man or a con woman, the con game is it's short for confidence. You gain someone's confidence. Essentially, you got to con people out of their money because investing in movies is so risky has to be almost impossible to make money. But occasionally someone does, and they knock it out of the park, and that's what your film is going to be. That's what you've you you know you, you've got to express. And it's your enthusiasm and your belief, because why wouldn't it be? You've got this great script, this amazing intellectual property, and it's going to be an award winner. It's going to do film festivals, and that's the enthusiasm that, you, uh, that I bring when I'm meeting with investors or pitching people. So it makes them want to get on board to be my friend. I, you know, I'm seducing them financially. Like, give me your money so you can join this group because that's what you bring to the party. We uh, financed my first feature, High Strung, by talking this Russian guy into writing a check. He, he, is a, he was a millionaire. I had a funny script that I was showing to everybody and pitching, and I showed it to the composer that I had used in my first short film, he loved it, showed it to this other Russian. He was a, two Russians, and they, uh, he, he said, my friend Serge says he'll, he's gonna, he wants to get on board. So Serge wrote a check for $350,000, and it didn't bounce. And we made that film, and I found out years later that he was running some kind of a scam in New York, selling medical equipment and scamming the government welfare somehow by getting old Russian people to buy things they didn't need and marking it up 100%. I didn't know at the time, and as a filmmaker, you don't ask, where does this money come from? You're just like, I've got a budget! Let's go! And we did! And he eventually fled the country under multiple indictments, and they found him in a monastery in Greece several years later. That was my first investor. Not all of them were crooks, but like with Trekkies, we self-financed because we decided we were just going to do it, and by grouping our resources, we were able to do it, and then we sold the film to Paramount after we got a bidding war between Universal and Paramount. That's what you want. You want, to, you want two companies to be interested in your project. And 
for six days in Roswell, and Suckers, they were both financed by a Japanese publisher who put the money up because a producer on an action film I did saw the success I had from Trekkies, and he said, what else have you got? Well, I said, I'm going to make this film called Suckers. It's about car salesmen. And he got Mr. Sano, was his name, to write a check. We made that film for ultimately $500,000. We started at three fifty, and we got it in the can, and we, we figured well, that's enough to get it shot, but not enough to finish it in post, which is always risky. You want to get enough to, to get over the finish line. But at least we were shooting, we shot it, and we, we, did, we had to put some of our own money in at the end to finish it, but we, it, the, the total budget was about a half a million, and we, but we got it made. Six Days in Roswell is a documentary that Mr. Sano financed, and I got that made for 120000 shooting on Super 16. And every case is different. You just approach everyone you know. Anyone has, you never know who's going to write a check. Treat everyone like they will, and eventually someone will. In the roughly 30 years that you've been making films, like, has your process of raising funds or getting a movie off the ground changed at all? Or is it the same as it was, you know, when you went out and made High Strung as your first feature? You know, I'm always looking for what's that new angle I can play to raise money. And it's always the same angle. You just have to ask for it. One of the salesmen in Suckers learns that his, his mentor, the general sales manager, tells him to ask for the sale. Ask the customer, are you going to buy this car? Don't be afraid to ask for the sale. The customers, the salesmen who do best are the ones who are not afraid to ask for the money. Go ask for the money. Don't, a lot of times the salesmen were afraid to ask because they thought, well, if once I ask and they say no, it's over. But if you don't ask, they're not going to, they're not going to write the check. So be bold. Ask people for money. I mean, set up the environment so that you can take their money, whether you cre- <laughs> means creating a, a DBA doing business as or an LLC or some kind of financial structure, a business plan, a script, a proposal. Here's casting. We already have this star attached. Do all your homework. So you have a package that's easy to say yes to and it's ready to go. And your sizzle reel. We shot this test scene. Look at the scene. Here's all the evidence of why you should say no. And then your enthusiasm backs it up and then ask for the sale. That's the key to getting a yes. I'm out of question. Well, I want to get to the next set of questions. Ulrich, it's all you now. What's one thing in, in television comedy that you haven't done yet that you want to do? Because, like, I mean, you, you've been behind the camera as a director. You've been an editor. You've worked on all these amazing shows. Like, what's something that you yet have to do that you want to tackle as an artist, either as an editor or a director? It's pretty hard to top working with Larry David. <laughs> for me, you know, when I met Larry, he said, why do you want to work on this show? and I said, Larry, because I want to learn how you do what you do from the inside. And he laughed and pretended he wasn't flattered, and then he gave me the job, because flattery works. (laughs) If you're going to go in on a job interview, (laughs) open with flattery. Don't make... I've made the mistake of going in on job interviews, and I forgot to flatter the show. This is the most amazing show I've seen every episode. It's incredible. I went in for an audition once as a director. Directors and writers, you're auditioning. It's not just an interview. You're auditioning. And I was meeting with the Ferrelli brothers for a, sit- a sitcom they had sold to Fox that they were doing, and the pilot was very secret, top secret, so I had to go and watch it in their office before the meeting to talk about whether they would hire me as a director on the series. And I watched the episode, and it was so bad. I was, I, 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 I almost was, I was shocked at how awful it was. 
It's, I mean, just to give you an example, the first scene starts with a man and a woman are on a date. They come home to the woman's apartment. She says, I'm going to go freshen up. She leaves the room and the guy, re- and she's got a pet monkey or orangutan or something. And, and, and she's, oh, that's my pet. Yeah, I'll be right back. She leaves the room and the orangutan rapes the boyfriend. Hmm. And it's played for laughs. And I mean, animal human rape is not funny, I thought, as I'm watching this. But they're going for the something about Mary kind of crazy comedy where you go where no one's ever gone. But I, I was so devastated by watching this that I couldn't compose myself enough in the meeting to, to, to rave. It doesn't have you don't have to you don't have to mean it, but you have to rave. Anything less than a rave in Hollywood means you hated it. You know, saying something is interesting <laughs> or great or good is not the same. It's got to be amazing. This is incredible. And I couldn't rise to the occasion after seeing that pilot. And so I didn't get the job that time. What did you say after watching that? I did my best to, to try, I'm sure I was pale and, <laughs> and just gobsmacked. And I did my best to not break down and, and say, what's wrong with you people? I was so excited to meet you. I loved something about Mary and, and what's going on here? I got through the meeting. It was fine. You know, we chit chat, but it's got to, to get the job. You have to do more than chit chat. You have to, it's like it, going for a job interview in the film business. It's a date. It's a first date. And you've got to fall in love with each other. You've got to express how taken you are. Love at first sight. This is, this idea is incredible. And when I met with Larry David, I could say that genuinely because I believed it. I loved Curb Your Enthusiasm. Working with him, to me, was like getting a chance to work with Phil Silvers, you know, or one of the classic great comedians of all time who's still with us because Larry's still alive. Those guys aren't. So he, he was properly flattered, and, and I, you know, my work got me in the door. And then I'm sure he made the obligatory phone call to someone I worked with before. You know, hey, Roger, Nygaard's not a psycho, is he? Okay, good. And then I got the offer for the job. I was the 25th editor they had interviewed. I, was, I found out later for that position when somebody left that show. I was replacing an editor named John Korn who was moving on to do something else. And they had met with a lot of people and eventually settled on me, partly, I guess, because... I asked Larry about this, and I talk about it in the book, in my book, Cut to the Monkey. I asked him how he makes his decisions and how he made his decision in that moment. And he said he makes all his decisions through his gut instinct, whether it's casting or a comedy moment or hiring me as an editor. He doesn't intellectualize it. He gets a feeling. And he got a feeling that, okay, and this is what he said when our interview was over. It was less than five minutes. He said, okay, he seems fine. And he walked out. (laughs) (laughs) And I got the job offer. He said when wow. they cast the comedian J.B. Smoove uh, for the role of Leon, when Leon came to audition, before he said a word, he just started making those Leon faces, you know, where he looks at him, and he makes that, gives Larry that look. <laughs> Larry was already laughing. He said, Leon, he, J.B. had the job before he even spoke a word because I was already laughing. And he, he had a feeling, right, that this guy's <laughs> funny. And he makes his decisions and all things based on his instinct which is what we should all do. You know, society tries to teach us to ignore our instinct, but it's always a mistake. You know, you get a feeling, oh, this person's creepy. This person's great, right? Your brain, Malcolm Gladwell did a whole book on it called Blink, how our brains do instantaneous snap analyses of any scenario or, or any place or any person we meet. And it maps on from that, okay, this person or this, this dark alley, 
has all these things that we know are scary, don't go there. Or this person gives me the creeps. I probably shouldn't date this person. Ah, maybe I should overlook that and do it anyway. I'm probably just tired. No, your instincts are at work, and but we overlook it. And it's the same with comedy. You have to have an instinct. You have an instinct. We all have an instinct. That's funny. You get a bunch of comedians together, and they're watching something. I've noticed when they're in a room or, like, pitching ideas, they don't laugh as much as they all go, ah, that's funny. Hmm, that's not funny. Oh, yeah, and they all agree, yeah, that'll be funny. Because they've seen it all, right? And so the surprise isn't there, but they know what's funny or isn't funny because they feel it. And then it, they, we try it out. They shoot it. It ends up on my desk as the editor. And then I get the, the choice of, okay, now my instinct is at work. Okay, what feels funniest? And I make a choice. I've got to choose my favorite punchline for this scene and then show it to Larry David and Jeff Schaefer and see how many of mine get switched out for a, a different one they choose. And I try to hit 80% or better. If I fall below 80%, I feel like I haven't done my job. Because then they've got to micromanage me, and they may as well be editing. I try to hit 95%. So that they, have, they the, the sooner I can get Larry David out of the room and onto the golf course, the, the sooner I'm a hero. Because he doesn't <laughs> want to sit in the room all day long. He wants to be out doing other things. He's got a million other things to do. And they hire me so they don't have to spend a lifetime in the editing room. Amazing. I have like... 30 things I want to say, but I'm going to just jump to the first question of our final six. Is that right? Ulrich, are you feel you good to move on? Okay. What's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? We're talking about student shorts, exercises. What do you remember about the first thing you ever made? The thesis of my book is don't be an editor who cuts films. Be a filmmaker who edits. Make films. Make short films. No matter what area you go into, whether it's cinematography, makeup, props, editing, producing... You need to understand filmmaking and storytelling. I wish I had learned more, studied more literature when I was in college. That's my biggest regret, because it's all about storytelling and story structure. Especially as an editor, since you're rewriting, you have to know story. I started making films when I was about seven years old, when I found my dad's 8mm camera. And if, you, if, if they left something out, I had it disassembled, or I was playing with it. I was often in trouble for, you know, Roger took the furnace apart again. And so I found his camera and started taking pictures of still, still photography and then movies. And my very first short film was a pixelated comedy where I animated my Charlie Brown and Linus dolls and made them tightrope walk over the edge of the couch because I had seen these Gumby cartoons on TV where they animated through pixelation these posable Gumby characters. So I wanted to emulate that. And that led to doing more short films most of which were chase films where I would conscript my siblings or my friends and we'd, somebody's chasing somebody for one reason or another. It didn't really matter. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, he's got the MacGuffin, you know, Hitchcock's MacGuffin. And so it's the easiest story to tell without sound is a chase. Like if you look at all the old films, the Keystone Cops and Buster Keaton, they're, they're always getting chased around for some reason. It's, it's an easy story to tell. So that led to, the, in high school, my, I got a little more sophisticated, shooting Super 8 and sound, and then college, I moved on to video, and then moved to California and moved up to fi shooting actual film projects, more and more sophistication, but equally as goofy. Uh, you know, that, that quality never quite left, I think. And if you look at children, Notice how children, they're always laughing. They'll laugh 30 or 40 times a day, right? And adults, they stop laughing. We get older and, and we, we start to get more serious and more depressed because of that reason, I think. And you have to 
you got to embrace that inner child and laugh at life and express yourself creatively. Like, like, and that's what film allows for me and for anyone who, who pursues it as a career is a chance to re-embrace your inner child and express yourself openly and genuinely. And you feel better when you make an audience feel something. Nothing affects me more than getting an email from somebody who says, I just watched your documentary and it blew me away. This, that, or the, you know, they give me a specific how it, it, changed, it changed my life or it made me think about something different. Nothing feels better than the result when you have a tangible result of something that you made affected people or a, a person in some way. At the end of a screening at a film festival, when my most recent documentary, The Truth About Marriage, was screening, this woman came down to me with her husband in tow, and she said, Thank you so much! I'm so glad he watched this with me! Because there's a segment in the film where I talk about, Here's men, just do this, okay? Don't try to fix women, just listen. Yes. (laughs) Just say, (laughs) Yes. Honey, how was your day? And then shut up! Do nothing except just express empathy. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's wonderful. Don't offer solutions. Don't, no suggestions. A woman, or not just the woman, the, the, the feminine side of the brain, we all have both masculine, masculine and feminine, but the feminine side of the brain needs to be heard for about 15 to 20 minutes per day. It's like this vitamin, this emotional vitamin. And if you don't get it, you get, start to get anxious and then angry and it leads to fights and conflicts and pretty soon you're breaking up. Just give me that, you know, give that person, give your partner that 15 minutes Turn your phone off. Put it on on airplane mode. Make eye contact. Honey, how was your day? Honey, how are you feeling? And then shut up. And then once 15 minutes is over, you can go watch the game. You did your thing. You did your part. And everything gets better. Your relationship gets better. Sex gets better. Everything is is flowing. The, 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 The wheels are moving. But by the same token, don't get greedy and don't ask for more than 20 minutes per night because the masculine side of the brain can't handle more than 20 minutes of talking <laughs> about emotions because it's what Dr. Gottman calls flooding happens. And once flooding, once the brain gets flooded, then the masculine part gets anxious and then angry and then arguments happen and pretty soon you're breaking up. And so there's this segment in the movie where all the experts are talking about this and it, it was really touching how this woman came down and thank you so much. He needed to hear this. And he finally had it, you know, so it just like it helped someone's relationship. <laughs> um, what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Oh boy. Well, I tried to collect it all and put it in my book. And the most important thing for an, a human being and, uh, and or filmmaker is to be creative daily. It's a muscle, right? And it's also, if you don't f- use it, you lose it. It atrophies. So you need to find a way to express yourself, whether it's in a journal or writing poetry or writing, whether it's writing a screenplay or a book or writing a short story or just writing your thoughts down. But you can also express yourself in other ways if you're not a filmmaker, you know, a busy writing a business plan or an architect designs blueprints for a house or you uh, take a pottery class and learn pottery. Th- th- I remember there was a study where there was a nursing home, and they, they separated the, the residents into two groups of 50. They gave everybody a plant, and they told half of the residents, here's a plant, a beautiful plant. You don't need to do anything. We'll water it and take care of it. You don't have any responsibility, but, you know, enjoy this plant. The other 50, they said, here's a plant. You need to water it and take care of it so it doesn't die. You know, it's your responsibility. Please take care of this beautiful plant. The ones that they gave the responsibility to take care of the plant lived longer because they suddenly had a purpose in their life. 
And our purpose is to be creative in some way. And what does it mean to be creative? It means to bring forth something new. Whether it's planting a garden or growing a plant, you're bringing new, something new into creation. And it's the same with a screenplay or a book. You're bringing something new into creation. The opposite is destruction. It's easy to tear things down. It's much harder to create. The default for people is to create a small version of themselves. And then it, it, you're, for the next 18 years until it moves out of the basement, you know, you're, you're stuck raising this child or children because they're all encompassing. But once they're gone, you're right back to where you started with, what do I do now? And that's when people start taking up hobbies like pottery classes or dance classes or writing poetry or filmmaking once again. But the point, the most important thing is to be creative and express your true feelings. Hemingway said that the, when he was writing books, he would write the most true sentence he could possibly write. And that's where he would start any given book or page or chapter. It's about truth, expressing truth. And comedy is about truth. Most punchlines are just a statement of truth. And then people laugh because we, it pierces the veil of deception that we work so hard to maintain about our lives and about the world and society. We all live in this deceptive bubble. And then comedians will shatter that by telling the truth. And truth is hard, but it's better for you. It's much healthier in the long run to live a truthful existence, a truthful, creative existence. So many good nuggets in there. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Well, my goal is to keep working, <laughs> period. Keep getting hired. You know, if I won the lottery, sometimes people say, what would you do if you won the lottery? Well, if I won the lottery, then I would be rich enough that I would be able to work until I died. But taking the jobs I really want to do, making maybe self-funding my own movies, because you don't ever want to retire, quote, retire. That's just waiting to die. What are you going to do, sit in a chair and wait for the sun <laughs> to go down and you don't wake up the next morning? Every day is a gift that you're here. And so my goal is to keep being creative, keep expressing myself, keep working, and enjoy my work, enjoy my life, my life by getting paid, ideally, to do the things I would do anyway. If you go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Well, well... To, to study, read, read all the great classics, all the not classic novels. I should have spent more time reading classic books because the masters did it all first. A lot of movies that you and I love and we go to see are based on stories that Shakespeare wrote. You know, The Lion King is an obvious, well-known example. It's just Hamlet, right? It, it, it's over and over again, there are these storytelling formulas or structures that human beings enjoy. And... There's no need for you to reinvent the wheel. You can reinvent. Your job is to reinvent a new combination. There are lots of unknown combinations that have never been tried before. But in order to make new combinations, you need to see what's out there. Look at what's come before you. Absorb all the, the old films that came before you. Absorb the filmmaking language and the, and the literary, literary language. And read as much as you can. I don't like to read. Uh, well, how are you going to be a storyteller if you can't read, right? Spend a little effort. Every night I read, every night before I go to bed. And as much, whenever I have free time, I love reading. And I guess I'm lucky that my mother helped instill that in me when I was young. She read to me and my brothers and sister, you know, Charlotte's Web and James and the Giant Peach. And I had uh, grew this love for stories and storytelling. And uh, found a way to express myself throughout my career uh, to express that desire to tell stories. And I'm going to keep doing that uh, until I have a stroke and fall over, I guess. 
<laughs> on that note, is making movies hard? <laughs> it is so hard. Every time I look back at a project, I think, wow, if I knew then, before I started, I would have never start, tried this. There's so much involved. But then again, I can't imagine not having done those hard things because it's like steel is forged in the intensity of the heat. And the world is not made of soft edges and pillows. You're not meant to lay around and, and, and have it easy. You're meant to be challenged. You're meant to suffer and cry and then write about it and express it to people. We love hearing stories about your tragedies. Comedy is someone else's tragedy. With you know, tr Tragedy plus time is comedy. Steve Allen said that, the first host of The Tonight Show. So the worst thing that ever happened to you in your life that you're probably trying not to think about is probably the best idea you have for a story right now. Write the story about the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to you, or the most horrific. Everyone has a story within them, because we've all been picked on by bullies, or been turned down, or, or dumped by dates. Life is hard, and, and filmmaking is hard, because human beings are involved, and they let you down. They, 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 some people work hard, and some don't. Some are incompetent. I can tolerate just about anything except incompetence. And, but it's hard to find, fill up a crew and not have some incompetent people there who are going to screw things up. But we try. And it's the hardest thing I've ever done. But I, that's why I keep looking for the harder challenge next time. Because it's good. It's good to be challenged. Otherwise, what are you? You're just waiting to die. You're sitting in a chair like somebody from WALL-E waiting for the end. And that's awful. That's a nightmare to me. Last question, where should people go if they want to find out more about you or get your book or anything else? Plug time. <laughs> sure, check me out, rogernygaard.com. That's my my website, and it has links to everything, all my books, whether it's Cut to the Monkey or The Truth About Marriage. All my films are on your favorite platforms. Amazon Prime has Suckers and Six Days in Roswell. And Trekkies has just been restored and will be released in the next month and a half i think in uh, june it's coming out for the first time on hd so that's not been available trekkies one has not been available for several years it was only available on dvd so we've been we we just very pleased to say and uh, announce it here i guess that we finished uh, a res restoration of trekkies and look for that Ulrich, what do you remember about our chat with roger nygaard I remember that Roger was very like smart and very like put together in his thoughts and the way that he spoke about his filmmaking and his, his art, you know, basically. I probably could have talked to him all day only, only about Curb Your Enthusiasm and Veep. Like, we could have just had at the Veep Curb Your Enthusiasm show and like I would have had plenty of stories to hear and things to talk about. I really, 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 really loved hearing the little details about working with Larry David and... How he was hired by Larry was like probably my favorite little story. Like, you know, like, oh yeah, this guy's, this guy seems okay. This guy, seems, he, he seems not crazy. All right. You know, or whatever it was. I just thought that was so fun. And just to hear about that dynamic and how he works in that space, I thought was really fascinating. So that was the thing that stuck out to me the most. But I mean, we talked so about so many things. It was, it was a good conversation. Yeah. He had such a great energy and it, I almost felt like we start off the podcast and he was prepared to do his spiel. Like we, we are confronted with this a lot where people who say yes to do podcasts have probably done a lot of podcasts. And so they have these kind of like stock answers they provide and they sometimes are on script. But I think at a certain point, 
we went off script and he he realized we were asking questions that he wasn't anticipating. And then I just loved his energy and his enthusiasm for teaching. Like he just felt like just a very good teacher. It was, it was one of the conversations that I enjoy, really enjoyed as of late. Good job, Roger. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Roger. That was awesome. But the thing that we really should talk about now or next on the list of things to talk about is that we don't have an article this week, which we normally do at this time. But instead, we are going to talk about the series of distributor report cards that the Film Collaborative put out last week, which, you know, basically they like got all these filmmakers to anonymously get, answer questions and give feedback on their distributor experience with, with the distributor for their film. And it's a very open, honest sort of conversation that you get. You hear these answers. It's basically like you get the answers to certain questions from a variety of filmmakers. Like, and you get to see like, okay, they had a comedy, no, no cast, you know, genre film, no cast, documentary, you know, and, and, and a little bit of information about their film. And then like you see their answers. So it's kind of, it was really, really insightful. The companies that we got to hear about were everyone's favorite, Gravitas Ventures. 1091, Breaking Glass, which I'd never heard of, Passion River, which I've also never heard of, and Eddie Wrights, which is actually, no kidding, usually people's favorites. So, Liz, what did you think about all this? I, I have lots of thoughts, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Well, as I mentioned last week, I was, I'm the distribution consultant for the Film Collaborative. I'm an independent contractor and I work with them and I do consultations for their members. But I also supported the formation of these distributor report cards. And I have a lot of context for why it was created in this format and the process of how it was put together. I really thought, I mean, I'm just very proud to be associated with it anyway. But I think I was very nervous and I'm still very nervous for a degree of blowback because I think you think about, I mean, you said this, Ulrich, before we started recording, like there really aren't reviews of distribution companies. There's a lot of like quiet conversation, like private phone calls. There's Alex Ferrari's Facebook group, Protect Yourself from Predatory Distributors, and that has like 5,000 members on Facebook. And that's usually a place where people will get information about distributors, but distributors also participate in those conversations in that Facebook group. So this is a great resource where filmmakers are anonymized, they're protected, they get to speak freely. They're not influenced by a public forum. And then they get to approve what gets published. Like all the filmmakers mm. got to look at it before it was published as well. So they're, it's like a pretty involved process that the Film Collaborative took on. Nice. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like reading it, there's just, you know, it, it, never, it really didn't feel as mean as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> like, especially Gravitas Ventures. Like, I felt like people were really like, kind of had a good idea of what kind of company they were before they worked with them for the most part. And then like their expectations were pretty much met. Like they like, Oh, the, you know, they didn't change the world for my movie, but they did these things that, you know, were, were what they promised they would do. There was a couple bad experiences in there, you know, but for the most part, it was like, not so bad. Like I was expecting <laughs> to have a lot of angry filmmakers with that company. And then 1091 was interesting. I think that was a little bit more, I don't know if you say more on the negative side, but it's just like, I think like expectations were slightly different with those filmmakers because of the connection to the orchard from before. And so they were sort of expecting one thing and they got a different thing, you know, but for the most part, again, it was pretty like favorable and not so negative, but it was kind of like calling them what they are, you know, 
and sort of like, yeah, like they're following more of the Gravitas Ventures model now, which like, you know, we kind of know already, but it's kind of good for that information to be like publicized and for people to be aware of what they're getting. And I really like the way that at the end of the report card, there's like a summary of like what we learned through all the comments. Mm -hmm. So like, if you don't want to like sift through everything, that's, that's, that's all the little quotes from the different filmmakers, you can just read the end part and like kind of get a good gist of like what that company is. And like, if they're a good fit for you or not, you know? So I, I don't know. I mean, I really feel like it was a really interesting resource. Well, I think it's the questions that were asked. Like, if you are, if you're doing a public educational resource, you can't just be like, did they hurt your feelings? You know, do you, do you <laughs> like them as people? You have to ask questions that are like, did they breach the contract? Did they say what, did they do what they said they were going to do? What did they say they were going to do? Did they communicate with you on a regular basis? So I think the questions may have informed a little bit more of a, a positive representation of each company than maybe the company deserved. I think that's one thing, though I'm not pointing out any specific company when I say that. And there has been a tiny bit of blowback in that, you know, Alex Ferrari's Facebook group that protect yourself from predatory distributors. Someone posted the link to the report card. And this one guy just went off on it saying like, this is like, I'm not going to quote him, but he basically was very upset that the film collaborative didn't take a stronger stance against the distributors. But the thing is, is this is not, this is completely fueled by filmmakers. If a filmmaker were to say, I hate this company, everyone should stay away, which I believe actually one filmmaker did about one of those distributors, they would publish it. But the film collaborative is not going to like come down and say, everyone should hate these 15 companies. Like the, it's just mm. irresponsible to make these kind of statements. So I think there could be blowback in either direction. They're like, I'm still waiting for distributors to get angry at the film collaborative <laughs> for even doing right. this resource. And I'm waiting for more filmmakers to say they've been fucked over by one of those companies and they don't feel the report card was representative and was too nice to that company. But I just want to acknowledge that there's an email address that's posted on the website and you can email the film collaborative and you could fill out your own report card for a distributor that you worked with and your mm. voice will be heard. Oh, that's cool. So this is going to be an ongoing thing that they're yeah. going to continue to do. Oh, that's yeah. nice. That's interesting. How many filmmakers do you need in order to like generate a report card? Do you need like 10, 20? Do you know? It's eight. I think actually most companies did 10, but one company did eight. And the issue is there's a few things. I know that there was some filmmakers who were very nervous about being identified about when they were approached. Like, I'll just say like one of those companies was very hard to find filmmakers who were willing to talk on the record mm. about that company. Mm. Mm. So I, and then you have to have a release that's when within a certain period of time, but has been out into the world enough so that the filmmaker would have expected revenue reports. They would have mm. expected some sort of, they would have experienced like an actual release of their title. Mm -hmm. But it's not too long ago in that the data is irrelevant. Right. Another issue is that staffing changes due to the pandemic or whatever are going to impact a filmmaker's experience. So a filmmaker working with a company two years ago is going to have a different experience than one working with one now. But we talk about that in the report cards too. The Film Collaborative tried to contextualize as much as they could. Nice. Awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like a really cool service and it's definitely something I think I would encourage filmmakers to do, right? Because I think this is just helpful for everyone, you know, 
I mean, maybe, I don't know. I think it's helpful for distributors too, because it, it just, it's going to help them find better people, better films for them, you know, like, cause if they have a report card with the take the takeaways, then filmmakers will, will know, oh, this, this might not be the best match for my film, but oh, maybe my film is better match for, for this company for these reasons, you know? So I don't, I don't really, like, since it doesn't seem to be so mean, <laughs> unlike this other person wishes it was meaner, I guess, I don't know. But I don't really feel like the, the distributors really have a lot to complain about. It's just more like, you know, you provide a service, like you're doing this, this, your business. It's like everyone gets reported on. Everybody has reviews, you know, for, across most industries. So why should distributors be any different, you know? So I, I feel like. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, if you have a film, you don't get to choose amongst a bevy of dozens and dozens of distributors. Usually you have a handful of distributors you're choosing between. And this could be a resource that you look into to see what public opinion is of that company. But you're probably going to have a phone call, have a conversation, trust your gut. I think the most important aspect of these report cards is when people talked about not getting revenue reports or breach of contract or, you know, maybe an upper level staff member being really patronizing to them in the way they communicated. Like those seem to be the big, biggest red flags. But in terms of like, what the revenue potential for your film is. It's like, you can never really know. And it's right. always going to be like, or almost, it's always going to be a gamble who you choose to go with at the end of the day. The thing that um, would have been one of the questions was what percentage of your budget was recouped through this distributor? Like, I think that would have been really helpful to know. Like, are these people getting 20% of their, of their money back? 50%, 100%, whatever. Like, was there a reason why that wasn't included in the questioning or... You know, is that something that you can't really ask? Most filmmakers don't keep track of that kind of data, most indie filmmakers. Or the issue is like, let's say a film collaborative staff member interviews a film team from a release two years ago, the producers moved on, but the director's involved, but the director hasn't done any of the counting. You know, it's like, there's no real standardization of like bookkeeping across the board. So I'd say that's one thing. I will say that the majority of filmmakers, like one of the questions that was asked was, did you profit? Did you recoup or did you profit? And we didn't put in the report card because a lot of people didn't know the answer to that. And then Mm. also, I don't think that's always reflective of distributor efforts. I think it's Mm. the marketplace. I think it's the content itself. But I I agree what you're saying. Like, it'd be great to know the economics of everything here. Right. Yeah, because I think like a, a lot of like filmmakers just want to know that people have made money from from the distributors. Like they, no one does, but or that they have gotten like you know some sort of you know rec- like I'm not saying have made their budget back, but just like that they actually are seeing checks, you yeah. know, uh, for some amount because there there are a lot of distributors out there who like fudge the numbers forever and never write checks or never send checks to filmmakers. You know, like that definitely happens. So it just would be good to know, like, like, are you actually getting a report and actually seeing money? That, and it's not just a report that says no money every time, yeah. you know? Yeah. I think that would be just helpful, you know, for, for filmmakers to be like, oh, yeah, like, okay, they're legitimate. They're actually paying out people, you know? Well, maybe, maybe they could add that question. Yeah. Some version of that question, because there's 35 more report cards to come. These are just the first five. 
And I know the Film Collaborative has received a few emails just in the past week from filmmakers who are like, I want to contribute. I want to contribute. Here's the company that I worked with. So if anyone wants to contribute, let me actually grab that email address and... Everyone should contribute. If you've had a movie and like you fall, like it's been out long enough where you could actually contribute, but it's not from like 1995, like, yes, please. <laughs> DRC, distribute report card, DRC at thefilmcollaborative.org. Yay. Awesome. Okay. Well, enough talking about that, Ulrich. Okay. So <laughs> this week we have a question from Lucas Kalsha, who is hero and friend of ours and just a great human. He writes, hi, MMIH gang. My question is for Liz. That's me. How did acting classes go? I'm a director who always thought about taking an acting class to understand my actor's process a little bit more, but never took the plunge. So I was excited when you announced that you became a budding thespian a few months back. I don't think Twitter ever got a follow-up. So I was wondering, overall, how was the experience? Would you recommend or think it's a must for directors? Does it matter what kind of acting class you take? And did you enjoy it? Thanks for your time and looking forward to hear your thoughts. Okay. I feel weird introducing the question and then talking with the answer. <laughs> so maybe I would like, you know, Arik, do you want to talk a little bit about, would you recommend or think it's a must for directors? Like, what are your thoughts about acting classes? Yeah. I don't know if I would say a must. I think it's helpful. You know, like I, I used to, you know, do acting and like, you know, try to like go out and get, get roles and all that stuff. So. I have that little bit of background and context, you know, working with actors. But yeah, I don't know. Like going after hearing your experiences with your acting class, it, it sort of feels like you have to find the right one and they'll be with the right group. But I, I always wanted to do improv. I thought improv would have been really helpful for me just to be like, you know, just activate that part of the brain and kind of help with storytelling and then help with public speaking and just interacting with people because. It sort of would give you, give you another ability to like get out of your shell and just, you know, kind of interact and communicate in a better way, I would think, or maybe even a more fun way than how I communicate now with my crew and my cast. But I haven't done it. And I don't know if I will do it because it's like of all the things in the world, is that going to be a priority of, to do? Like right now it's not, but maybe it will be someday. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's definitely something that I think if like you want to do it, you should just do it. But like, if, if you're like, I need to be, I want to be a director, like, oh, here are all, I, I got to do this to be a director. It's like, no, you don't. You could, but you don't have to, only if you want to. So to update Lucas, yes, I took these, it took a day long acting classes. It was essentially two classes in one day and it did not go well. And I, <laughs> I mean, I honestly have blocked out some of the takeaways of the experience. But it felt a little bit more like an audition prep class than a genuine acting class because the teacher kept talking about how you don't want to look at the other actor in the eye. You want to focus on something else. You want to clear your mind. You know, he really didn't encourage the traditional prep work or method or sense memory techniques that I've heard about, you know, in class. And, you know, it did not inspire me to go looking for another acting class because it was just very scary to do that one. And I think I learned that I don't have this un, I don't have this like repressed urge to become an actor. I thought I did. I was like, oh, maybe this dream had been squashed years ago and I got to re, you know, reconnect with it. But ultimately, I, I realized I do not want to do that. And I think the way I'm going to solve this problem that I thought I had in my directing is actually just to become a more 
educated writer and to know mm. the arcs of each of my characters in a very clearly defined way so that if an actor asks me a question about the core of the character, I don't think taking an acting class will help me, me personally answer that, but rather me knowing the beginning and middle and end of why that character was formed will help me answer that question. And I'm learning that because I'm co-writing the script with Amy Taylor, this horror script I talk about a lot, and she's so great about character development. And I keep on thinking like, this would be a really cool shot. And I really want to do this weird animated sequence <laughs> in between. And what if we had a, you know, a barrel full of nails? I don't know. Like, I, you know, we come up with these weird ideas and she's like, okay, but what happens to the characters in between these moments? And I think that's actually the more important thing for me is to focus on why the character does what it does, not how a performer gets from A to B in a class. Yeah. And when you said there was two classes, were there like two two-hour classes, two, two four-hour classes? Like how long was it? There were supposed to be two three-hour, I think, classes, but they both ended early <laughs> to my surprise because I paid the full fee and, <laughs> and had to get a babysitter. Yeah. And they both they were supposed to be just a morning class and an evening class in that like there were two tracks of the same class, but the teacher knew that I wanted to get the most bang for my buck. So he's like, well, why don't you take two classes over one day and maybe you'll learn more. And I just went through the same process twice of feeling uncomfortable twice. So it wasn't, it wasn't any different. The two, they were the same no. class basically. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Weird. Weird. I think maybe, yeah, maybe you just picked the wrong class. <laughs> That's what seems to be the consensus. But I, but also just to acknowledge to Lucas and anyone listening that you and I both did acting when we were younger. So we do have a taste of that process of putting yourself out there and being vulnerable and trying to click into something. And I do think that is valuable. I, yeah. If you have never done that before, I do think it's worth taking the class. Nice. Awesome. Well, if you want to be like Lucas Kalshaw, you can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called now. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. You should also check out the International Screenwriters Association called the ISA. They're an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks so much to Roger Nygaard for coming on the show. To Jenna Krishan for setting this up. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Vrymoot, for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome as always. And thank you all for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. All you. Um, you're supposed to say, Ulrich, what did you remember? Oh, hey, Ulrich, what do you remember about our <laughs> chat with Roger Nygaard?